You are listening to the Evolution Exchange podcast, a platform we've created to bring the Nordic tech community together. My name is Charlotte Roberts and I'm your host. Okay, lovely. So firstly, I just want to say a massive thank you um, to everybody that's joining us today. Um, So we're, of course, going to be discussing data and gaming. Um, So before we go ahead and get started um, on the podcast questions, if everybody could just give a quick introduction to themselves. And if Natalie, if you'd like to go first. Yes, sure. Uh, I'm Natalie. Uh, I'm the Stockholm Insights Manager at Moyang studios so the creators of minecraft uh and yeah i've been in the game industry for about eight years yeah enjoying it here nice glad to know that um you're you're still enjoying it after eight long years that's amazing (laughs) lovely um so if alex if you'd like to introduce yourself next that'd be lovely yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Alex. I'm an ops engineer at uh, King Stockholm. Been around for, for six years now. Yeah. Um, uh, been uh, exciting to join this podcast. Oh, I'm excited to have you as well, Alex. Thanks for joining us today. Um, Kaylee, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Yeah. Uh, hi, I'm Kaylee. Uh, I'm the data analytics manager at Coffee Stain Publishing, uh, the makers of Deep Rock Galactic and Valheim. I've been in gaming about four and a half years now. Yeah, happy to be here. And we're definitely happy to have you as well, Kaylee. Thank you very much for that introduction. And Tom, last but certainly not least, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Yeah, hi. So I'm Tom. Um, I'm the CTO and co-founder of Lurkit. Um, We're a Swedish startup uh, helping studios and publishers to find the best content creators to collaborate with. Lovely. Thank you very much, Tom, uh, for that introduction. So we'll go ahead and jump straight into the questions now then. Um, So this first question is by Kaylee. Uh, So Kaylee, your question is, how do we convince teams that have never worked with data and analytics that is beneficial for them? So if Kaylee, if you'd like to give a bit of background behind that question, and then I'll let everybody jump in. Yeah, sure. Um, so the the background behind this is that when I uh, when I came to Coffee Stain, they didn't actually have any kind of data and infrastructure, and they they had a few uh, game teams that were using things like Google Analytics independently, but no centralized analytics service uh, given by the publisher itself. Um, and so a lot of my my daily job is going to these game teams, often indie games, indie indie developers and convincing them that they really do want to take the time and effort that it takes to implement this telemetry uh, because down the line, this will be useful. Um, And when you're working with game teams that are very, very small, sometimes four, five developers total, this is quite a commitment. Um, And so I wanted to talk a bit about how that process goes from a scary corporate looking uh, analytics person comes in and tells developer to do things um, because it's not always an easy sell. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I this have, is kind yeah. of where I'm at. <laughs> <laughs> I've had direct experience of that. Um, and from my, uh, where I worked on it, it was more about building trust. So changing that look of scary corporate data person into, oh, you're actually a human being with that can give benefits. So it was a lot of 
setting together with the team and that that is hard like uh, especially if you're only one person who's doing the analytics team uh, to like sit with each indie developer but that gave the most benefits in the long term but yeah it is a difficult question because i could also question that like is it valuable for a small indie developer to have data like there are other benefits for it yeah, exactly. I mean, I've had I've had some teams that have said, yes, OK, so we do want to do this and they've started implementing and uh, soon they'll get to see like sort of the first uh, payouts of that. But then I've had a few that have been like, you know, no, this is too much of an investment for us and that's OK. Um, but I think uh, finding finding that trust, uh, especially during a pandemic with a publisher that has developers all over the world has been has been really challenging. Um, but I think uh, that sometimes what I've had to do is is sort of give them examples from from either our other games or from the small data that they do have and show them like this is where Google Analytics falls short. This is how I can improve upon this for you. And I think that's uh, that's been a bit more successful for for some of the teams as well. Yeah, that's interesting. So that's sort of the approach of um, uh, educating. Like, if, if you do this, you'll have these kinds of outcomes. Um, so what I'm curious about is, what has the experience been for the teams you've been working with once they start to see their actual results and outcomes of uh, sort of this data-driven approach? Uh, does it create up some kind of positive feedback loop where, they, where it reinforces their uh, enthusiasm? I think uh, right now it's sort of hard to say. Uh, so we have an SDK that that kind of spits out sort of standardized telemetry. So it gives us a, a hashed user ID so they can count how many people. And it gives us things like uh, playtime and uh, sort of like a country where in the world sort of level. Um, but what we are still waiting on is the gameplay telemetry, right? And this is this is what's most interesting a lot of times for the developers. Because yes, they, they care about how many people are playing, obviously, but they can get that from the Steam backend. Uh, so the interesting stuff is still yet to come. And I think this is another bit of why it's it's been a bit of a struggle occasionally, because I don't have any gameplay telemetry to show them the cool stuff that the Steam backend can't give them. It's interesting because uh, we've had similar challenges uh, here at King with with machine learning. Like many years ago, we didn't have the the infrastructure at all, and even today, when when there are new prototypes, uh, new new game prototypes, it's always challenging to convince the team. Okay, now is the time to think about ML integration. How because if you continue like this in six months, there's going to be a lot of of tech debt that you have to deal with. And and we've had so we've had this kind of uh, trust and and convincing challenges as well, and something I noticed that works sort of well is always go for a hack week, uh, try to to advocate for it uh, for hack week and implement something cool that they really like, and try to gain gain trust that way. Yeah, um, I think. With uh, with a couple of the games that have used uh, sort of third-party solutions that just aggregate and you can't see, it's a black box. Like you can't see how the aggregation is done or on what factors are they grouping. Um, I think that has, ironically enough, uh, been a huge help uh, for me. 
because then I can come in and say, okay, but we don't know how this works. But with this solution, you guys get to decide how it works and you guys get to decide how we're going to aggregate and really giving the the power back to the developers in that way. Um, emphasizing, you know, yes, this is a time commitment, but you guys are implementing what you want to implement and in the order that you want to do it. Um, and that, that seems to uh, ease some fears, I would say. It's a, yeah, it's a way of showing that they have control over it. And usually giving control is a way of building better trust uh, on it. So uh, I do like that, that solution, like giving, showing it as a way of getting more autonomy. Yeah. Do you guys work with uh, any like framework on setting metrics within the company at all? Because the, it could be a way of using like at Moyang, we use OKRs and tying it into like goals has mm. helped people become more like accepting of like data tracking because then it's like they can tie what they're doing directly to goals. Mm. Yeah, right now we're in the sort of defining uh, metric stage. And so I, I'm right now introducing both to my own company and to the developers that we're working with. Okay, what are our standard KPIs? Uh, what do each of those mean and how are they aggregated? Uh, so I think while while implementing those things into a goal structure is sort of on the timeline, we're a bit of ways out from that now. Um, but yes, I, I totally agree. I think that being able to see improvements in things like retention or in uh, uh, me median playtime, for example, uh, would be absolutely a, a sort of pat on the back for for successful telemetry implementation. Yeah, aligning OKRs is, has been working as well for us. Even if we already do have metrics, like for, for new projects, it's always... Uh, you have a bit more more inertia when when all the OKRs are, OKRs are aligned, because uh, historic, historically it's been the bottoms up kind of uh, challenge uh, or like not challenge but movement. Um, so yeah, having a bit of, of alignment as well from from the top always helps to ease the conversations. Yeah, definitely. And I'm fortunate uh, to work with producers that have experience in other companies that did use uh, data and telemetry and standardized metrics. Um, so it's been really helpful uh, to to have them sort of backing me up and reinforcing these conversations with developers as well. A side question, have, like, based on this, like, there, there is this pushback uh, towards like using data or like it, how is it beneficial for them? What are the usual arguments? Because I've heard one that it inhibits creative thinking, two, it's a violation of user privacy, like to be tracking them. And, and there's like, or three, it's like, it's, yeah, you're, you're lifting the one with like it's too much effort and not enough mm -hmm. value. Are you hearing other kind of things and are you able to meet those kind of like um, things that they're saying against it? Mm, those are the three big ones for sure. Um, because again, indie developers, the, the game is an art form for them. And they're, they're very resistant to allowing numbers to dictate any part of that creative process. Um, I hear a lot also of 
the developers wanting to see exactly how I can answer these big questions from this, these tiny data points. Um, and that's also somewhat of a challenge because oftentimes they don't have a statistics background. Um, and so explaining to a non-statistics person how a model can can show churn, for example, uh, is often quite challenging, especially if when they get they want to see like the, the database and they want to see the actual code. And I'm like, you don't read SQL. Let me try and explain this another way. Um, but those are the three big ones for sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, Go ahead. Um, oh no, I was just gonna uh, comment that I, I can I can see why trust is uh, sort of a a core concept in in, in these kinds of discussions. Uh, it's really interesting. I, I think so. I mean, definitely. Yeah. Fortunately, like the we're quite data driven company, so we kind of don't have this debate anymore. But one thing that comes up once in a while is um, uncertainty around the data, as having having an answer about a question uh, or like the fact that you don't have a clear answer about a question because it's too much uncertainty is sometimes hard for people to to understand uh, if they don't have a statistical background and um, also sometimes having like too many metrics or like why can't you measure this specific things that I want to see well because it doesn't make sense or because uh, you can't measure it this way uh, it's it's always interesting to to have these conversations with developers. Yeah, uh, one, yeah, definitely. One way I've uh, approached the the aspect of like we don't want to inhibit the creative uh, gut feeling of how we create the game is talking about data as a tool, like in the mm -hmm. same way that they get feedback from the forums or they get they have workshops with the team add data collection as a tool, that it's not going to give the only answer, but it's just one more puzzle piece that can help you make a decision. That's the way I've framed it, and that's usually given a bit more uh, buy-in to it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think my one of my most repeated sentences in the last six or seven months has been something along the lines of, I am not going to tell you what to do. I'm going to give you information and then you're going to decide what to do. I'm just giving you information. There's no top down, uh, you know, uh, smack down from, from publishing coming uh, from from this this information that I'm giving you. Um, and I think after after I say this about six times during a meeting, they start to to kind of relax a little bit, I guess. <laughs> nice. uh, but I think that's the fear. I think the fear is that the big corporate monster is going to come in and tell them, no, you can't have this game structure because this number you don't understand. Um, and I think a lot of it is just dispelling that myth. Uh, as cool as I think it would be for data to be able to do that, um, I, I don't think that we can. <laughs> Oh, nice. Well, what we'll do then, we'll uh, move uh, swiftly on to the to the next question now. Uh, so this is Tom's question. Uh, so Tom's question is, how do we facilitate understanding slash um, knowledge based on large amount of data and how do we make sense of it all? Um, so, Tom, if you'd like to give a bit of background behind your question and then I'll let everybody jump in. Yeah, sure. Um, so sort of the the technical challenges, uh, notwithstanding, um, when you have this huge pile of 
data that you've collected from 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 somewhere um then how how do you go from that to something that you can take action on that is in in a direction that aligns with uh, yeah whatever your goal is whatever you're trying to achieve um and and can you do that solely based on the data or do you need do we need something else as well besides the data to to reach that point where we can create value from this uh, this heap of of data um, and yeah i mean sort of the textbook definition of of data is values facts figures and then then you move into information with which is these values in some kind of context uh, or it's been calculated or condensed and sort of after that you go into knowledge whatever that is and that's sort of where i think a lot of the interesting things happen uh, so i wanted to get your your guys's perspective on that oh i've got so many thoughts but maybe i shouldn't be the first one who answers <laughs> 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 i'm going to leave it over to somebody maybe alex i mean within machine learning it's always a big yeah so I, I think yeah so one one cool thing i've heard about like uh, or like a cool definition I've heard about machine learning or, or data science is to be a macroscope when you can, like looking at the data rather than microscope uh, to kind of try to make a sense of it. Uh, so that I thought it was a cool definition. Uh, but I think one of the of the key is to have someone uh, well-versed in data involved from the beginning. Like if someone's going to analyze for a specific use case, it would be nice to have them from the beginning to make sure that you don't end up with a pile of data that's actually not usable, um, or it's very hard to to like uh, join with other things. Uh, so maybe that's that's one of the key things to to start with is to have some statistician actually looking at how do we actually track this and be involved from the beginning of the features being implemented. I think I think that's a a really important aspect of it. Um, I mean, the other thing that uh, that I think is really important in addition to that is to to not track everything. Um, I, I prefer to start with with questions that we want answered. So to go from sort of the the zoomed out, uh, ask the questions, and then kind of reverse engineer how do we get those answers. Um, and so instead of going into a game and and tracking every time the player moves instead starting with okay but what areas does the player pre uh, prefer to go if it's an open world uh, game and and move from that way uh, with the the data person involved tightly with the game team so that it's usable and useful yeah i mean there's this great quote on that uh, if you torture the data long enough it'll confess to anything <laughs> so so if you just go on this kind of fishing expeditions you can sort of yeah you you can find what you're looking for so yeah. I, I like your approach to have sort of a some kind of value proposition at the very start of it sort of like why are we collecting this data and then you have that purpose aligned uh, from the start it it's one of the those interesting journeys because usually I, I completely agree with Haley about the that decide what it is that you want answered and then add it. 
And it's once you've done that a couple of times that you start realizing, okay, these are the core concepts that we need. So it's like, because you don't know that from the beginning, especially if it's a game, which has, can have very, many different ways of slicing the data, or even a product, you don't really always know what is it that is core to this product. Um, and it's after you've asked it several different ways that you start finding more the patterns of, okay, this is how we want the data to look like. But that really is a long journey. Like I worked at a startup uh, with an e-commerce and there we had the same issue. They were wanted to be data-driven. We were, we were tracking everything. But the data that we we're tracking was completely useless. So we kind of like had to start over from the beginning. And it's just like, okay, what is the core value of the product or the feature that we're doing? What is it that we need? And then implementing just that event to making sure that we can answer those questions. Because everything else we could never use because there was always something missing. It was in the wrong format. It would take too much effort to gather it. Um, so, yeah. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be you'll start tracking a lot, but you need to start it from like, what are the questions we need to answer? And then the structure of the data will follow. So it's like, you'll start with a whole bunch of raw and then start building these base tables. Oh yes, these are the ones that we're constantly using. Oh yes, this is the way we should be looking at. We should be looking at it from a product perspective or a player perspective or from a feature perspective, depending on the game. Um, but that kind of comes up after a year or so of asking lots of questions. And yeah, there's a lot of, of, of refactoring in, in data and it's always interesting or like always a challenge to for backfilling as well if, if you actually want to support that uh, how, how to backfill into your new event classes something that you already tracked that that probably doesn't have all the info that you wanted to track in the first place uh, it's always very challenging and, and interesting questions popping up over there yeah, I, I found one of the most helpful ways is thinking about data in two different buckets. It's like, this is data that we're using for monitoring or reporting, and this is just interesting right now in this moment. And then let's just throw it away. It's not, it will not be valuable in the history. Then you can have other data that's more valuable on the long trends, like looking, we need to see like, how did this look last year in the past five years? And being able to track that long term but and that one is really important and we get that one in place very early but the monitoring can let's just keep on changing it whatever the history we don't it doesn't matter but i often find especially within working with developers that they will mix those two up mm. um yeah and it is pretty important to keep them separate because they have mm. different use cases and i would i would add um because you, you talked about telemetry data, which is definitely like the, the ops side of things. That's very low level core to the like close to the product. And and uh, let's call it the data metrics um, that are more about, oh, is, is the pipeline healthy? Yes, the data that it produces, does it drift, does it stays as expected, or we have outliers popping up that we never saw. And and I would add the third set on on what you said, Natalie, is more like the business metrics, where it's like, you know, in, in the end, that's what they want to see. <laughs> like, if you want to convince people, they're going to look at the business metrics, actually, like you said, they don't care about the telemetry data at all. Um, 
and how you you create those three sets of of and how to convey also the meaning of those three sets uh, to different people is is yeah is key I think yeah and I mean sometimes you would need to combine different data sets to sort of get to the truth of a matter like yeah. if you're if you're looking at um, from a product perspective a session length or or playtime length for a game for example and you see that number go up. Um, that's a good thing, right? The numbers are going up. Um, but then if you combine that with uh, telemetry and you can see that performance is going up, uh, going down. So the reason the session length is longer is because the performance is slower. Mm. Uh, so do you have any sort of examples of, of cases like that or some other sort of counterintuitive explanations for particular data points that you've found interesting? I have a, a few of those actually, not so much in uh, in the job now. We have too few data to to really make those kinds of uh, observations. But um, in the past, I, I've worked really closely with user research, um, and I think adding adding the qualitative aspect of of what the behavioral data um, on on a product or a game is showing you can often lead to very very different results. Um, so I've had instances where uh, the players will be like, we hate this feature. This feature is terrible. And then you look at the behavioral data and they choose this feature over the feature that they tell people they like better. And they use it you know, two or three times as often. Um, and so then it's about like, OK, so what do we do with this information? <laughs> they say they hate it, but behaviorally they do not. Um, and I think that happens. That happens a weird amount. Um, humans don't seem to behave in ways that that like line up with their opinions very well. Um, I think the other the other thing that um, that I've noticed is sort of the reverse, wherein um, players will say things like, "Oh, the UI is terrible. The buttons are terrible." Uh, and then in the telemetry data, what you see is that they actually haven't figured out how to do like the first core pillar of the game to get things started. And this is the reason that they're complaining about all these other features. It's because they haven't they haven't been able to get the game going. Um, so I think when you're when you're trying to to make sense of your data, it's that combining of different data sources and different methods of collecting those data sources that really brings meaning to all of it. Yeah, definitely. And sort of knowing which data points to combine or to correlate is yeah. sort of fix experience and, and definitely uh, some trial that, and error sometimes. And that is a huge uh, issue, like knowing because it's data will maybe show you what, but it'll never answer the why. So, for example, one of the things that we've been looking at recently is like how does quality of the game relate to like correlate with engagement or retention and consistently through our analysis we're seeing like no correlation but intuitively we know there is a correlation like trying to think about okay uh is it because they will put up with a certain amount of bad quality and then completely leave is it that's why we're seeing these kind of like non-correlation between quality and engagement and it's you have to create these hypotheses, even though the data seems to be saying there's no problem, even though you intuitively feel like there should be. 
And that brings up an interesting topic, which is uh, how long should you do an A-B test, for example, and, and the hangover effect of or novelty effects of, of a new feature, like, oh, they like it very much. And you see all these upticks in, in your KPIs and two weeks later, everyone's bored about it again, and it's actually harming the game and, and how to play with all of that, how to detect all of that. And, and decide if okay this could be a recurring feature or maybe it was a bad idea or maybe we should iterate on it and publish a better version uh it's uh, yeah it's a fun dance yeah the, the fun dance there is also it's like you have to wait to give the players time like they do not like to wait <laughs> for the answer and, and and to that it's the measurement might actually change not because of the game, but because of the cohort of players who actually reached that point in the game, yeah. Uh, depending if you know if they're players or not, or uh, how, how well versed they are in the game, it might take a lot of time before you actually have stable measurement. A lot of data does not equal a lot of time has passed. Like those, yeah. those are usually <laughs> having to explain that constantly. Uh, yeah. what, what do you mean? We're on the cloud. We can can't we just scale? Have... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I think uh, one of the biggest misconceptions that I deal with on a daily basis is uh, stakeholders or devs or whoever not understanding what the denominator is. Um, or what the, what it should be. Uh, so if we're looking at like percentage of people who do new feature, they're like, right. So uh, the the whole player base has has uh, tried this now, and it's like, okay, but we don't want to look at the whole player base because this feature occurs late game. So you just want to look at players who have passed a certain point already, and kind of explaining that, and then uh, sort of the reverse when you have a graph up, making it very clear, like who are we looking at here and and what does this mean for the game as a whole nice i think it um everyone's made some really interesting points on um on that question um i'll definitely move on to the um to the next question now which is um been submitted by alex um so Alex, um, your question is, how can you use the data to enrich the player's experience based on the in-game behavior? Um, so Alex, if you'd like to give a bit of background behind this question, and then I'll go ahead and open it up to the group. Absolutely. So a few things in gaming that are kind of fun is that, yeah, like it, it ties into the cohorts. You can have your, your segment of players and say, oh, you like that feature more often, or this time of this type of uh, level, or you can probably expose you to more of that to, to make you more happy and have some personalization. Um, but you can also take that as a more indirect approach and say, oh, okay, this is how my players behave in the game. Maybe I can study that and maybe even simulate them so that I can build this internal tooling uh, that's just for you know the, the game makers. Um, and we've had this playtesting platform, for example, where now level designers, they can just say, oh, okay, so this is a new content. Uh, I'm going to throw it at the simulation model and just have the internal playtest going on uh, to gen generate this, this data that's not from real players, so it has a few biases, but uh, gives back a sheer amount of, of statistics that's interesting for them to, to iterate on so that they don't have to release the content to players in the first version, they can just iterate internally and try to uh, 
try to make sense of what impacts something could have before before exposing it to players. Uh, and that's something that's been uh, has been quite interesting to to look at and build, and and that stems from from game behaviors to start with. And so that was interesting to hear your your thought on that, especially because most of you have worked in open worlds where modeling the game state is much harder. Uh, so yeah, happy to hear your thought. Yeah, so question there: um, How would you go about sort of creating this? this first model for the simulation. Um, do you start out just internal player testing to build up some kind of data profile from that? Or would you uh, sort of yeah try to create something from scratch and see what happens if you let that loose? Well, what, what we did is uh, we just started recording what players, like how they, how they make moves in the game. And from there, we had data and we could use uh, supervised models to to then create an average player uh, and then start from there. And then we say, oh, okay, it would be interesting to have, you know, skilled players. Uh, let's look at like a segment of the data and maybe try to make a model out of that instead. Um, and also learn more about what, what simulations low level designers wanted to look at. Did they want to look at the scores that were generated or did they want to look at how far you can get in the level, uh, like a proportion of, of how many simulations you run. Um, so that, that, that could be one way. Uh, another way could be to have some of those learnings would be just heuristics, right? Um, you can go with, uh, with heuristics. Usually game developers are quite good at defining heuristics. Uh, to, to then create some simulation model, simulation tooling. Then we also tried like uh, something like tree search, where it's completely unsupervised and it just learned on the go, but that's usually much slower at executing, has much more compute needs. So it's a bit of a, there are different tools, but they all have their pros and cons. Uh, I, I'm like, uh, as I've been working a lot with open world, more games that's like, well, Paradox games are probably not so open world, but they're pretty large. But Moyang, Minecraft specifically, has no end goal. So that's always been one of the problems. We've been like thinking about how would we be able to simulate some core player behavior, but it's, I think we've been able to now do some type of categorization about the player behavior, but every single person plays it so differently. So there's, there's no like, Oh, they've completed the level. What, what level? There, there is no level in, in, in Minecraft. Uh, and even if we would like, look, oh, well, if they're playing survival, it's or like they play survival just to and get to the end dragon. Yes, that's about what, 1% of our player base. Okay, so what, this is, yeah. it doesn't really help very much for these kind of simulations. Uh, I think it's always been like thinking about what do the game designers need? and then working based off that. So when we've been using in-game behavior, it hasn't been on this on a simulation level because they're not interested in learning about like, well, I think they would like to, but it's kind of hard for Minecraft. But they kind of want to see like general general behavior. Are they, is it split by survival and creative players? Or is it split by um, 
people who really like Redstone and split by people who are influencers? Like, what is the usual kind of split? And that is kind of like where we've been able to use telemetry or in-game behavior to show them, okay, you've, you've got your idea of how people play the game. This is how we've been able to see it in-game. Do they map up? And then finding like, oh, yes, this this is hypothesis have been, yeah, we this we've proved that this hypothesis is correct. But then also shown some surprises. Oh, there's a whole group of players who like to explode a lot of TNT. Oh, okay, this is interesting. Uh, we didn't think about this. Um, so that is the way we've been helping. But it's always been going out from um, the game designer's need. We also have dungeons, which might be Minecraft Dungeons, which is more like a dungeon crawler, which is, has a bit more clearer, this is the end game. And there we could probably use simulation data. Um, but we're not there yet. Like it's, I, I would say that, that the game, like at least Paradox, I know we were talking about it back in the day, but it was also hard to simulate some of it. I think we were talking about how to simulate the end game of Stellaris because it took so many hours to get there. Um, dungeons, we're talking about simulation to be able to test balance of certain items. Uh, that's kind of like what we're doing. But mm. it's very hard to like say, oh, King is probably much farther in that area of like, oh, being able to simulate throwing it and seeing the simulation effect. That would be so cool to do. I don't see it happening yet. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you, Natalie. I um, We have a couple different kinds even of, of open world games at Coffee Stain, right? You have something like Goat Simulator, which has zero goals whatsoever. Like there is no progression. It, you go around and you, you buy at things pretty much. Uh, it's a very different kind of game than something like Satisfactory, which is also open world, but has a very clear sort of progression in technology and in building of the factory that you're doing. Um, so I think some open world games are more simulable, if that's a word, than others. Um, and as Natalie said, this is uh, highly advanced. And I think um, I think there's a lot of like data data teaching, data learning to be done before before stakeholders are even able to sort of take that in. Um, I, I think it's super cool. I would love to see that, uh, but we're we're not there yet either. I don't think. I think the yeah. journey there is pretty straightforward, though. Like it, mm -hmm. it's about building this trust. Like the first thing that Kate is doing now with getting the teams to realize, oh, how is this beneficial? Like more long term. But it's you know, instead of working with just developers, you're having to work with game designers, which is like there. It, it is much harder to talk to them about data, where they'll be questioning what what is retention, what is engagement, what what is basic these basic metrics, what is telemetry, why is this like? Can we trust this? So there's a it's a long journey to get the game designers to understand the value, and then the next step is also to get them to use use it as well. It can happen, but uh, I think it's it really depends on the type of games that you're working with to do that. But back to to what you were saying earlier, Natalie. It's interesting because you can have as as game designers, they probably have a 
a sense of the personas of, of players that they're making the game for. And I think there's a lot of value in like actually validating those persona with the data. And then from there, you can actually inform them and, and build more, more uh, informed pipelines and all of that. Absolutely. Uh, we did a bit of this work with uh, uh, Crusader Kings um, at Paradox. And that uh, that game has has very distinct play styles, it turns out. Um, and that was that was really, really interesting to see. Um, and now, um, well, I mean, I haven't worked there in a couple of years, but after we we put these these personas there, we've sort of validated what the game team thought was happening. And I think there was like one extra persona that they were like, oh, um, and that was able to inform uh, their marketing, not just for uh, Crusader Kings 2, but the, the sequel. Uh, so I think it's it's highly useful um, when you can do things like that. Yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting topic, and and um, I'm thinking sort of if you're using telemetry from from within a game to create some kind of adaptive system, I don't know, say difficulty slider or whatever. Um, do you run into the risks of sort of coming up against the uh, creative aspects of, of the gameplay as well, where if you make the game too easy, if you use the data to a certain point, you sort of change the game experience too much, and w which will result in sort of a, a loss of a negative outcome. Um, are you the master at, at Segway? Because I think that's a really good one. Very <laughs> good segue in the next question, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I, I do want to like add the the to that. Um, oh no, I've lost my train of thought. Let 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 like wait the next question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, as Alex mentioned, yeah, great segue there into Natalie's question. Um, so Natalie's question is actually, how do you balance in-game behavior data with creative um, intuition slash um, qualitative analysis data when making game feature decisions? Um, so yeah, nicely segwayed, Tom. <laughs> yeah. If uh, Natalie, if you'd like to explain a bit about your question and then. And obviously everybody just jump in yeah so the context here is like i work with so many different teams at moyang and there are teams that are on the creative end which like like kaylee's experience like, are not interested in using data but then i also have the other extreme end where they want to use data for every single question or decision that they want they kind of like want to use it as their walking stick for everything and for me, it's about not only when I'm having these conversations, but also teaching my team on how to help them decide when to use data for their decision making. Uh, I would love to like talk about it. I, I think it's usually easy if I give an example. Um, so we, we have, I'll take an example from uh, Paradox when I worked there, where they wanted to make a decision on whether they should be making a sound DLC. Um, and it was a DLC, like a downloadable content with music to it. And it was a really good music DLC. And they wanted to like look, oh, how many actually listen to the music, look at the work with the music. And my gut instinct is like, you cannot use data to answer this question. Like th this is not 
a question about like how people are using it. This is a question of one, is the partnership with the creator, the audio creator, good? Is this something that would be beneficial in the long term? Do you want as a team to make a sound DLC? Like, is it is music important to you? Because it's more of a strategy and vision kind of decision and would more benefit from maybe a qualitative analysis by bringing in maybe a like a group people and asking, do you like these sounds? What like what is what is good sound for a, for this game? But those kind of conversations are sometimes hard to have with people who want just, but we want to know what our players are doing. I'm wondering, have you guys run across this before? Um, I've had I've had also some experiences with this. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, <clears throat> I was working once uh, with a game that was yet to be released, and uh, the sorry water went down the wrong way um the the product owner wanted so so much to be data driven which is great love the enthusiasm but uh he what he wanted was for for data to tell him which people he should be marketing to and uh, we went back and forth and back and forth several times. And every time we'd come to him and say, we don't have the data to tell you this. We're, we're, we're not the droids you're looking for. Like this is, you need, you need qualitative research. Like you need market research. I, I can't do this for you. And his response was consistently, I don't care if you think it's accurate. Just give me something to stand on. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you kind of get this view sometimes from from stakeholders. Either they think that qualitative data is like the bee's knees and, and numbers mean nothing, or the reverse, where they think that numbers are everything and qualitative data is crap. Um, and so I think it's it can be uh, really difficult to sort of teach that blending and like when do you use one and, and when do you use the other Uh I think I think we did eventually convince him to to use uh, user research, but only after producing a lot of graphs that didn't mean anything. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> him and the data. <laughs> yeah, that was one of my first projects. It was a great learning opportunity for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it can be really really difficult to to kind of convey when you can't answer something. I've I've had this uh, as well once where. Oh well, you guys produce this measurement. Can we just have more decimals to it because we want to measure like the centile difference? And I'm like, but that you already that's that's on ten attempts. You don't have the centile <laughs> precision on ten ten measurements. Um, and and I think when it comes to to games, especially, it's it's I think the one of the great things about this industry is the the very creative. Uh, moves, very bold moves that they need to come from the art style of the developers and, and all of that. And uh, wait, this is not finance. <laughs> yeah, and um, sort of a, a sub-question there is uh, how good of a predictor is your current data of the future behavior? Uh, of, of the users you're tracking or, or what outcome you're following. 
Uh, I mean, if you were to ask people 100 years ago uh, in the logistics sector what they want, they answer more horses or a faster horse. Yeah. And, and then some kind of revolution happens and suddenly there's cars and your data can predict, predict that. Yeah, uh, that is my usual go-to. I'll say it's like, is this something that's happened in the past that we expect will happen in the future? Is that... Is this the decision that you're making going to do that? Or is the decision that you're going to make change the product? And usually the decision is to change the product, make it change in a yeah pretty significant way. Yeah. It's, uh, I find it hard to get, the, get it across the knowledge of when to choose one or the other. Um, yeah, I think one of the one of the most useful tools uh, that I've ever experienced is to work in almost in pairs with a qualitative researcher. So you're going to these team meetings together and together uh, you answer questions from the team. So it's not they're not asking the data scientist, they're asking the researchers. Um, and then you and your your user researcher partner uh, or your qualitative researcher partner and talk together about like, okay, but but he's really better at answering this or he can be like, no, this is really more of a numbers thing. Um, and I, th I found that to be really helpful uh, because I think it helps for stakeholders to see someone sitting there being like, no, 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 I can help you. As opposed to me being like, no, 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 it's somebody else. <laughs> that is a very good uh, input. That's having someone say, yes, I can help you helps alleviate that question but i realize now that tom you asked the question about how secure are you in the forecast like the models that you make and yeah. this i find really fascinating because i worked in the hotel industry where we like we would model revenue um and occupancy for all our hotels in the the nordic and we could do forecasting within 98 percent uh, accuracy it was ridiculously how close we were to reality. And so we were really annoyed when budget would be above our forecast because it's like, there's no way we're going to get that budget because our forecast is so accurate. Um, I then went into e-commerce and forecast dropped to maybe like an 80% like accuracy. And because it's like the seasonality had a much stronger effect and was not as reliable as this hotel. Gaming industry, I do, I have, the only time I've been able to forecast is like after the first maybe few weeks and then you can forecast the drop off. But then that's it. You can't forecast like the impact of the next update, the next DLC, year over year. There's no way. <laughs> and it's like I'm finding it really hard to find that. I think if you have a product that's very, very stable, but even Minecraft is not even stable. Like Minecraft is huge and you would expect that one to be really you, we can forecast this. It's like, nope, no way to forecast this. <laughs> so answer is like, no, it's not very good. <laughs> this is all my stakeholders want to. They're like, okay, we have data now. Can you predict next year? And I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> this is God of War coming out and nobody knows what's going to happen. <laughs> it, yeah, it's... I feel like games are so reliant on maybe the Reddit or social trends that it has an impact that you can't really uh, yeah, predict. 
and uh, other games that are coming out. I mean, yeah, and the players only have so much time. <laughs> yeah. Platforms is what I noticed. Like even if if mobile is, is getting the hang of it, we get so many. Like compared to let's say ten years ago, gamers nowadays are so much more. Like games are so much more uh, popular these days and, and diluted in in the society that like you can't say. You can't take a hardcore gamer and uh, make provisions and, and offer forecasting and apply that to mobile gaming or vice versa. It's, uh, it's very different profiles of people as well. And, and this is something we're discussing a lot internally as well. Sort of if we can reach that level of forecasting, it would be amazing for us. Uh, and then, yeah, if we, we're trying to find the correlates and, and try to predict um, outcomes of, of game releases. Um, but I, I don't know, as a game developer, there are some things you can control and some things you can't. So at least when it comes to marketing, you, you can sort of, you can control your budget and, and what kind of marketing you're doing. That's something controllable at least. But yeah, the gaming market as a whole is is quite unpredictable. Yeah, it really is. Like I know there was one, we got a question at Paradox, I remember, when they were asking like, when should we release a game? And I remember this was back when it was a bit more easy to get the Steam data. Um, and so we did like this kind of like, when are games released throughout the year? Like which months? And how successful are they? And the only thing that we could come up with as an answer to this was like, don't release in November because then we're trying to compete with AAA games. Like that was the only finding we could find. And then nothing else was, <laughs> you can say. So, so the only slogan that I, I remember on the whiteboard, there was somebody had written it like, remember, remember, don't release in November. Like that was the only thing. <laughs> 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 so. Yeah, and that's one of the things that we that we deal with at Coffee Stain too is uh, the power of the meme, uh, because we have things like 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 Go Simulator, and this this is not a game you would expect to go viral, but when celebrities get hold of it and it becomes a meme, all bets are off. And so how 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 do you even go about predicting the social reaction? to a game because it doesn't it doesn't follow from marketing budget either. Sometimes things happen. So I think we'll go ahead and stop the recording there. Um, thank you very much for everybody who's still listening and thank you everybody um, who's joined us today. Um, yeah, I'll go ahead and stop the recording there. Thanks guys.